And you're on right now with Jim Dawes. Your daily journal of news, politics, and culture. From an America first perspective. Coming to you on the Mojo Five O radio network. And streaming on demand on iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, and Spotify. The website is jimdawes.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at RightNowJimDawes. Shoot me an email at RightNowJimDawes at gmail.com. Or leave a voicemail at 772-245-0750. That's 772-245-0750. Well, this past week, while everybody, including Rush and the great one, Mark Levin and uh, Savage and just the whole talking universe was telling us that uh, Donald Trump was some sort of uh, savant that was, uh, you know, planning to uh, force the Democrats to embrace the Marxist squad. I uh, I said that I wasn't so sure about that, that I thought he was just uh, acting impulsively. And uh, usually when he acts impulsively, the the leftists and the Democrats and the media mouthpieces uh, overreact so badly uh, that he wins. Uh, the thing of it is that Donald Trump is on the side of truth. The problem is he's very poor at articulating that truth. But when he forces uh, an issue like this and forces the Democrats and the media to <clears throat> freak out, what he does is uh, illustrates for anybody that's, you know, uh, got eyes to see what the truth is. And when he tweeted out that uh, Omar and Tlaib and Ayok and uh, Presley, Pressler were in fact uh, Marxists that uh, were anti-American and that if they didn't like it, there were other places they could go. It was, uh, you know, such a blunt, uh, spoken truth that the, uh, the the frenzied media reaction just illustrated uh, and brought it home. But now, Trump had this rally in North Carolina, and the very next day, that is uh, yesterday, after um, we had gone to air, Trump basically threw his uh, supporters under the bus and said uh, he wasn't responsible for that chant. He disavowed it, and um, he sort of used the opportunity of the chant to walk back the statements that they could leave and sort of repudiate himself because those uh, those attendees at the rally were, in fact, just um, just chanting what Trump had said. Now, it makes me wonder whether or not people will resent the fact that, uh, you know, once the fire started coming in, that he uh, turned tail and run, or if uh, they are so without any other, um, you know, vehicle to fight back that they will uh, continue to stand by Trump. I did not think it was a good look for him to go on and throw his Trump support, his supporters under the bus. Here is exactly what he said in response to 
um, Jonathan Carl's question in the Oval Office. Yes, and Mr. President, if I may, when your supporters last night were chanting, chanting, send her back, why didn't you stop them? Why didn't you ask them to stop saying that? Well, number one, I think I did. I started speaking very quickly. It, it really was a loud, I disagree with it, by the way, but it was quite a chant. And uh, I felt a little bit badly about it, but I will say this, uh, I did, and I started speaking very quickly, but it started up rather rather fast, as you probably know. So, so you'll tell your supporters never to well, say Well, I, I would say that. I, that is- I was not happy with it. Uh, I disagree with it. Uh, but again, I didn't say I didn't say that they did, but I disagree. But, with but they were echoing what you said in your first tweet. That they should go back. Well, I don't think if you examine it, I don't think you'll find that. But I disagree with it. Anybody else? I didn't say it. They did. You most certainly did say it. And the people chanting were just chanting uh, the you know uh, the thumbnail of the tweet that you sent out, and to throw them under the bus <clears throat> really, really is unattractive. But You'll notice there, uh, Jonathan Carl's question is basically uh, trying to get Trump to act like uh, John McCain did. You remember when John McCain was at that uh, campaign rally and uh, someone spoke ill of the great uh, Barack Obama, the chosen one. Um, John McCain <clears throat> corrected his own, um, his own uh, voter. And told him that uh, uh, Barack Obama is a good man, a good family man. And basically what the uh, media is saying is, why can't Donald Trump be more like John McCain? And you'll notice that John McCain lost. And they said just as vicious of things about John McCain, despite the fact that he was a, a wounded warrior and really the Democrats' favorite Republican that could always be counted on to say negative things about Republicans. They treated him. They called him a racist. They, they made all sorts of terrible innuendo that uh, he was going to take the country back to the Dark Ages and that uh, you know he was a closet supremacist and all of that. And, uh, and now Trump has, well, there's no other way to put it, he, he has let us down. And I wish it wasn't the case. I'm not going to come on here and pretend it didn't happen. I supported the whole uh, the whole idea that uh, uh, Omar, in particular, who came here uh, under fraudulent means as a child, though, so you could you could turn a blind eye to that if it were not for the fact that she has continued to engage in immigration fraud as well as many other frauds, tax fraud, perjury, repeatedly. And you'll notice that uh, at the same time, uh, the the facts in her really eight-year-long crime spree, Omar's, are coming to light uh, by the Powerline blog and uh, in American Greatness. With this story breaking, you know, of uh, Trump supporters saying, uh, send her back. The mainstream media is studiously turning a blind eye toward the circumstances of her uh, migration here. 
and the fact that, uh, you know, she is not who she claims to be. Omar is not her name. She is from another family that uh, that just used the Omars that were already in the United States to uh, to get her into the refugee program. The refugee program was in the process of being suspended because the fraud among these Somali immigrants that settled in and around Minneapolis was so rampant. The um, the Department of Homeland Security did some sample. DNA tests, and they ter- determined that no fewer than 87% of the people that were claiming family refugee status were not related to the people that they were, uh, that were bringing them into the country. But uh, Omar got in under, under the wire and then promptly uh, married her brother, so that he could get citizenship in the United States as well and all the benefits and perks that come with that. But we're not supposed to notice these things. The United States and its citizens are just supposed to be a doormat for the world. We're just supposed to pay for all of this. That's our function. Our function is to sit down, shut up, hold still, and accept our beating. And anything less than that is proof positive that we're racists. And if we complain, oh man, we are really double-dog racists. As a matter of fact, we're not only racists if we complain about it. We're Nazis. Here's a, one of the talking head so-called analysts on CNN uh, describing the Trump rally. I see that rally. That looks like a Klan rally to me. That looks like a Klan rally in 2019. That looks like a Klan rally. I didn't see anybody wearing any hoods. I saw smiling, uh, enthusiastic people that were there to support their president. And they were offended <clears throat> by this, uh, this constant uh, hatred that has been directed toward America and toward people that love this country. And yeah, they chanted 13 seconds of send her back. And the media were far, far more outraged over that 13-second chant than they ever were by Black Lives Matter chanting, what do you want, dead cops? When do you want them now? What do you want, dead cops? When do you want them now? They were far more offended by those 13 seconds than pigs in a blanket frying like bacon. They were even more offended by that 13 seconds than they were the Antifa terrorists that attacked the ICE uh, immigration center in Tacoma, Washington, while chanting or while uh, quoting AOC and the, uh, the other members of the squad that it was a concentration camp. But they've decided now, if you're a Trump supporter, you're a Nazi.
But when you are backing a candidate who has made his entire campaign about white identity politics, about how white people are getting the short end of the stick, and he has backed that up with racist rhetoric, racist policies, racist action, and this is the camp you're in, then you do identify with some level of racism. You do fall in the category of white supremacy. You cannot back a racist and then say, no, but I, don't su I only support X, Y, and Z, but I don't support his racism. Oh man, oh man. So that that's the that's the bottom line. Your role as white people in this society is to be the whipping boy. And you should be quiet and accept your whippings gracefully. And if you don't, if you push back at all, if you object, if you call out the mass of hypocrisy on the other side, then you're no better than a Nazi. Here's old Donnie Douche on MSNBC saying exactly that. Now, you know, it's interesting. We keep talking about race. We keep always talking about minorities. It's on white people. It really, really is. You don't get to say he's good for the economy and they all say stuff like that. No, they don't. This is a man yeah. with Nazi tendencies. Well, I'm not going to use the word fascist anymore. You don't, get to, you don't get to support this guy without us calling you a Nazi. That's not going to happen. Mm -mm. I would I, I I go back to my original position that Trump would have been better off not making this tweet. The Democrats were in the process of eating their young or actually eating their old. The clan was uh, the squad was now starting to call Nancy a racist. They were starting to call her uh, Biden a sexist. Because that's what they do. That is their go-to. Whenever they're pushed, whenever they don't get what they want, whoever stands in between them and their goal of Marxism is smeared as a racist. Mm -mm. And the, the sad part about it is there is a substantial number of people that uh, are buying into this narrative. They've been so assaulted and so vilified for so long, they just are desperate for it to stop. And if it, uh, if it requires them groveling uh, and kowtowing and condemning their own people, well, then that's just what it takes so they can get on with their life. There's a, a clip online of a Marianne Williamson um, Event. I'm not sure what it is. It looks like it's being held in a church where she's leading all the white people in the crowd to um, apologize to the few blacks that are present. So there's they're forming circles around these, you know, few black, blacks that are present, and they're they're um, fa they're repeating after Mary Ann Williamson this long self-loathing apology, and that is really. You know, what, what the left has in mind for white people. We're just here to pay for the bills, to be the villains, to be the whipping boys. And you dare not resist or Joe Biden will call you a racist. Again, this is about dividing the country. This is about dividing and, and raising the issue of, of racism across the country because that, that's his base. That's what he's been pushing. That's his base. So we're right back to the old um, 
we're right back to the old Hillary Clinton thing. We're just a big old basket of deplorables. We don't want the free enterprise system, or, or we don't vote Republican because we want the free enterprise system to survive. We don't want to protect the borders so that we're not responsible for providing government health care to the entire third world. We're not worried about the crime that's flooding across our borders or the illegal drugs. We didn't vote for Donald Trump because he promised to keep us out of foreign wars. No, we're racists. I'm sick of it. I'm not buying it anymore. I don't think most people are. It's just over. The The power of the accusation of racist has lost its ability to wound. If they want to think that of us, I don't think they do. I think they know that they're lying. But if they want to think that of us, that's fine. Go up. Go ahead. Mm-mm. Marco Rubio did push back just a little bit, and I was glad to see that. That one of their members of Congress from their party says that support for Israel is all about the Benjamins, and they couldn't even pass a resolution condemning anti-Semitism by itself. But it took them less than 72 hours to pass a resolution condemning the president of the United States tweet as racist. And even in the media, Obama says we can't let people across the border. And nobody says anything. A Republican says it, and it's white nationalism. So the hypocrisy, the self-righteousness outrages people, too. And on top of it, you have these four members who are Americans. No one should question that they are fully as American as me or anybody else. But they're also political bullies. They go around attacking people, calling other Democrats just like Southern segregationists. But when you hit them back, it's because they're women of color. And, and, and so they hold a press conference saying we shouldn't be talking and dividing people on the basis of race or ethnicity. But then they go on to say, by the way, if you disagree with us, you're a white nationalist and you're a racist. He just nailed it. And, uh, and I guess, uh, well, my worry, I guess, is that it's going to work on a high enough percentage of the population that just doesn't have the, uh, the fortitude to continue to stand up with the, uh, to these constant assaults that they'll erode enough of the uh, old line traditional Americans that they, uh, that they can win the 2020 election. I may just be in a fatalistic mood because um, it could also be having the opposite effect. It could uh, have so offended so many people with, um, you know, these worn out accusations that it will motivate them to take the only chance that they do have to um, to get revenge, and that is to return Donald Trump to the White House. But this is the kind of stuff that you're going to continue to hear all the way up um, through the election. This is old uh, AOC herself. I think this was shortly after she was elected. And not only that, but in, in the actual address, there was falsehood after falsehood. And we have to make sure that we get our facts straight. Everyday immigrants commit crimes at a far lower rate than native-born Americans. And not only that, but the women and children on that border that are trying to seek refuge and seek opportunity in the United States of America with nothing but the shirt on their backs are acting more American than any person who seeks to keep them out ever will be 
So not only are the immigrants, the illegal immigrants, better people who commit less crime, which is a falsehood, and I'll explain that in just a second, but they're actually more American than you are, you hateful racist. And this is sort of a trope that um, Ilhan Omar was uh, repeating at the Netroots convention uh, just last week. She loves America more than any natural-born American does. And that's why she said she's so ashamed of it. But um, this notion that immigrants uh, commit less crime than native-born Americans is a, a neat little trick that they pull. They lump legal immigrants who have been screened to make sure that they don't have a criminal history and that they're safe to admit they've gone through a stringent screening process. They lump those in with the illegal immigrants who have not been screened and commit crimes at a much higher rate than either the legal immigrants or the native-born, much, much, much higher. But because they're lumped in with these uh, the, the legal immigrants that are screened, we can't screen Native Americans. They're born here. They're already, they already have rights, and they do commit more crimes than legal immigrants that have been screened to make sure that they're not going to be a burden on society. But you take those legal immigrants and you lump them in with the illegal immigrants, and that way you can say that immigrants as a whole commit fewer crimes, and it's just a little bit. It's just a very small number. And even that goes away if you consider the fact that illegal immigrants are by definition breaking the law when they get here. That's why they're called illegal immigrants. So you have to take that out of the, out of the equation entirely and pretend that that's not a crime. That's what the Democrats do. But then she goes on with this trope that if you want to protect your borders, if you don't want to have to pay for to educate to provide health care, to, uh, to provide you know, prisons for the criminal aliens. If you don't want that, if you don't want your culture basically destroyed, then you are not as good an American as those people who break in here. I think what's going to happen in this latest episode is uh, because the news cycle is so frantic these days, it will quickly be forgotten about, but it will enter into people's consciousness. Just another uh, episode of how vicious the left is willing to be. Trump points out the danger that these four freshmen represent to the nation. People say, hell yeah, and we don't want that. And all of a sudden, they are vile Nazis. I'm going to play you one more clip. This is a guy, I think his name is Imwat Awat. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. He's one of the talking heads on CNN. He actually goes right after Paul Begala right before this clip and calls Paul Begala, you know, the guy that uh, managed Bill Clinton's, uh, worked on his campaigns, calls him a racist, and then he goes on, of course, to call Trump supporters a racist. 
Look, you have to take this on the offensive because there are real life repercussions to this. I'm a person of color. When I get told to go back home my entire life, I was like, wow, this is racist and hurtful. But I did not know, Chris, until this week that they were just simply disagreeing with my political <laughs> and economic ideology. Right. And what we're witnessing, and let me be very subtle here, is the death rattle of white supremacy in America and in Europe. Well, I wouldn't be so sure about that. I think what's going to happen is uh, people are going to realize the existential threat that these Marxists pose. And, um, and people of all colors and all faiths are going to unite against this. We're going to run out to a break, but when we come back, we're going to have some extended uh, comments from Josh Hawley, who gave a speech at a national conservative conference. And uh, I've been saying for a long time that he is the rising star on the American Nationalist Front. And this speech that he gave really confirms that. Stick with us. We'll We'll be back after two messages right here on Right Now with Jim Dawes. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word, delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwans.com backslash yum for details. And you're back on Right Now with Jim Dawes, your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an American nationalist perspective. Coming to you on the Mojo Five O Radio Network. Well, the great thing about Trump is he was sort of a transitional figure and a, a placeholder, somebody that could uh, uh, vanquish the establishment parties of both ends, so we could get to uh, you know an actual battle of ideologies, nationalist, populist housed in the Republican Party and Marxist globalists housed over in the Democrat Party. I like the way that's set up. I think that that will be an enduring majority for the nationalist populace. If we can get through, um, you know, eight years of Trump and have a worthy successor that can actually articulate and build upon, um, you know, the um, the uh, polarization of the of the two parties. And I think uh, one of the best candidates for that. Well, you know, obviously you've got Rand Paul, 
who's an excellent candidate. You've got some others, uh, Tom Cotton. But this uh, freshman senator from Missouri, um, Josh Hawley, who uh, beat Claire McCaskill to take that seat, he really is um, quite articulate, and he speaks about these things in a way that you know that he um, is convicted. He believes this, um, this. He's not just an opportunist. So I'm going to play you a, a, a long, it's almost 20 minutes, but it's from a speech that Hawley gave to the National Conservatism Conference. I'm getting tired of that word conservatism. It sounds goofy. I would have just called it the Nationalist Conference. But um, he goes on to outline these themes of uh, national interests, uh, anti-globalism, and basically calls out uh, you know, how we got here and how we get our way back to a true uh, nation of people with common interests. As we gather tonight, we face a nation divided, a political class paralyzed, the old political programs in shambles, the future uncertain. For we have come again to a time in our national history, one of the great turning points, when the fate of our Republican government is at issue. And I, for one, am eager because it is time that we talked once more about first things. And I, for one, am hopeful because in the heart of this nation, American strength has not failed. It is only waiting to be recognized, waiting to be called upon, waiting to be given voice. And that is our challenge. And that is our duty in this hour. Let's be frank. For too long now, this country has been badly led. We have been governed by a political consensus, forged by a political class that has lost touch with what binds us together as Americans, and it has lost sight of the basic requirements of liberty. Since the days, <laughs> since the days of the city-state, the Republican tradition has always viewed self-government as a project bound to a particular place, practiced by citizens loyal to that place and loyal to the way of life they share together. But the reigning political consensus shows little interest in our shared way of life. Worse than that, it denigrates the common affections and the common loves that make our way of life possible. It undermines the kind of labor and economy on which our way of life depends. For all intents and purposes, it abandons the idea of the republic altogether. In its place, the leadership class have attempted to build a new state in their own image, one that exists cut off from our history, separate from our shared beliefs, beyond borders and beyond belonging. That project has failed. And what they have left us with instead is the curse of faction. The great divide of our time is not between Trump supporters and Trump opponents or between suburban voters and rural ones or between red America and blue America. No, the great divide of our time is between the political agenda of the leadership elite and the great and broad American middle, the middle of our society. And to answer the discontent of our time, we must end that divide. We must forge a new consensus. We must recover and renew the dream of the republic. 
That work begins with a clear assessment of where we stand. For years, the politics of both left and right have been informed by a political consensus that reflects the interests not of the American middle, but of a powerful upper class and their cosmopolitan priorities. This class lives in the United States, but they identify as citizens of the world. They run businesses or oversee universities here, but their primary loyalty is to the global community. And they subscribe to a set of values held by similar elites in other places. Things like the importance of global integration and the danger of national loyalties. The priority of social change over tradition, career over community, and achievement and merit and progress. Call it the cosmopolitan consensus. On economics, this consensus favors globalization. Closer and closer economic union, more immigration, more movement of capital, more trade on whatever terms. The boundaries between America and the rest of the world should fade and eventually vanish. The goal is to build a global consumer economy, one that will provide an endless supply of cheap goods, most of them made with cheap labor overseas, but funded by American dollars. But it's about more than economics. According to the cosmopolitan consensus, globalization is a moral imperative. That's because our elites distrust patriotism and they dislike the common culture that was left to us by our forebears. The nation's leading academics will happily say all of this out loud and for the record. Here's MIT professor emeritus Leo Marx, who said that the planet would be a better place to live if more people gave their primary allegiance to the community of human beings in the entire world. Uh-huh. NYU's Richard Sennett has denounced what he calls the evil of shared national identity. The evil of shared national identity. The late Lloyd Rudolph of the University of Chicago said patriotism excludes difference and speaks the language of hate and violence. And then there's Martha Nussbaum who wrote that it is wrong and morally dangerous to teach students that they are above all citizens of the United States. Instead, they should be educated for world citizenship. I think you get the idea. The cosmopolitan elite look down on the common affections that once bound this nation together. Things like patriotism, national feeling, place, and religious faith. They regard our inherited traditions as oppressive and our shared institutions like family and church and neighborhood as backwards. What they offer instead is a progressive agenda of social liberation in tune with the priorities of their wealthy and well-educated counterparts around the world. And all of this, the economic globalizing, the social liberationism, has worked quite well for some, for the cosmopolitan class. Whom it has not served are the people whose labor sustains this nation. Whom it has not helped are the citizens whose sacrifices protect our republic. Whom it has not benefited is the great American middle. Because in this bargain, foreign competitors get to make the goods and we just buy them. And then they buy up American companies with the profits. And yes, in this arrangement, there are lots of jobs to be had. Jobs on Wall Street or in Silicon Valley or in Hollywood. Because the truth is the cosmopolitan economy 
has made the cosmopolitan class an aristocracy. At the same time, it has encouraged multinational corporations to move jobs and assets overseas, to chase the cheapest wages and pay the lowest taxes. And it has rewarded those same corporations for then turning around and investing their profits, not in American workers, not in American development, but in financial instruments that benefit the cosmopolitan elite. And where has this left middle America? Well, with flat wages, with lost jobs, with declining investment and declining opportunity. We don't make things here anymore, at least not the kind of things a normal person without a fancy degree can build with his or her hands. In small towns like the one where I grew up in middle Missouri, struggle and disappear and a way of life is lost. And it's not just the small towns that struggle. Just about any American worker without a four-year college degree will have a hard time in the cosmopolitan economy. Maybe that's one reason why marriage rates among working-class Americans are falling, why birth rates are falling, why life expectancy is falling. All the while, an epidemic of suicide and drug addiction ravages every sector, every age group, every geography of the working class. You know, Theodore Roosevelt once wrote that the Roman Republic fell when the sturdy Roman plebeian who lived by his own labor and voted without reward according to his own convictions ceased to exist. Our leadership class seems bound and determined to repeat the experiment. Is it any surprise? Is it any surprise that in the last half century, as our leaders have pursued a program the American middle does not espouse, does not support, and does not benefit from, that public confidence in American government has collapsed? Is it any wonder that American voters regularly tell pollsters that they feel unheard, disempowered, disrespected? Because who now listens to the American middle? The cosmopolitan agenda has driven both left and right. The left champions multiculturalism and degrades our common identity. The right, well, the right celebrates hyper-globalization and promises that the market will make everything all right in the end. Eventually, maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) The truth is neither political party has seemed much interested in the American middle for quite a long time now. And neither political party. And neither has seemed much concerned with the republic that the middle sustains. But the old political programs have grown stale. And the old political truisms now ring hollow. And the American people are demanding something different and something better. It's time we ended this cosmopolitan experiment and recovered the promise of our republic. Let's start with this. Let's start with this. America is not going to become the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is not going to become America. We are... We are a unique nation with a unique history and a unique purpose in the world. And that history began more than 2,000 years ago when the proud traditions of the self-governing city-states met the radical claims of a Jewish rabbi who taught that the call of God comes to every person and the power of God can work through each 
so that every human being has dignity and standing and can change the world. And so the idea of the individual was born. And our first forebearers brought those radical convictions to these shores and reshaped the Republican tradition. They built a new republic, governed not by a select elite, as in the old days, but by the common man and woman. Grounded on the premise that it is the common man and woman and their virtues that are the keys to self-government. And now we must carry their work forward. We must recognize that a Republican nation requires a Republican economy. Because citizenship is not just a title. Citizenship is a way of life. To be a citizen requires independence. It requires the power to participate in your community, to provide for your family, to make your own decisions. And for those things, our citizens need work. They need jobs, and they need them in the towns and communities where they live, not just in the cities on the coast. Because a good job, a good job is about more than good money. It's about being able to make your own life. It's about being able to build a home. It's about being able to look your neighbor in the eye and know that you're his equal. And we need those jobs in America. And that will require change. Because an economy driven by money changing on Wall Street ultimately benefits those who have the money to begin with. And that economy will not support a great nation. So we need new thinking and new policies to bring the work that makes for citizenship to every person in America willing and able to work. That means encouraging capital investment in the great American middle, in our workers, not just in financial assets. That means investing in research and innovation in the heartland of this country, not just in San Francisco and New York. That means challenging the economic concentration that stifles small producers and family enterprise. That means new pathways for skills and job training so Americans can get the tools they need and the respect they deserve without the mountain of debt that the higher education monopoly now imposes. And I propose today new legislation that will work toward that end. It means trade policies that put American workers first, that prioritize them over cheap goods from abroad. That encourage the real production of real things here in this country and not just arbitrage schemes by the giant corporations. It means an immigration system that rewards and nourishes American labor rather than devaluing it. And this is only a beginning. This is only a beginning because work must be our priority and work must guide our policy. Economic growth is important. And rising equity prices are all well and good. But above all, we must get good work for the American people, the kind of work that makes liberty possible. And we must rebuild our sense of shared purpose and belonging because self-government cannot exist with these, without these either. Our national solidarity has been broken by the globalizing and liberationist policies of the cosmopolitan agenda. And now we must forge it anew. And so at this moment in our nation's history, we must work to raise up a generation united in a common love for our distinctive heritage and achievements as a people. And that means we must teach our children who we are as a people without apology. 
We must join together. We must join together to renew the bonds of family life, to honor the claims of kinship and the covenant of marriage. Marriage should be prized in our national policy, not penalized. And from taxes to health care, families should get the support and the pride of place that they deserve. To rebuild our common purpose, we must protect our communities of faith because religious faith has fueled our history and it has bettered our society. Now, let me just say, it's not the role of government to promote Christianity or any religion, but let us be clear. Our government should not hinder or diminish religious expression. We need... We need strong religious communities, active in civic life, protecting the vulnerable, defending the weak, because these communities have helped make us who we are as a people. In all of this, our aim should be clear, to renew the way of life on which our republic depends, to renew the great American middle who make our republic possible, to renew our common venture in freedom as a people. There is much work to do. There is much need to meet. But there is much cause for hope. For in the heart of our country, American strength has not failed. The kind of people who built this nation are here still, waking early and working late, manning the fire department and coaching the little league, helping the neighbor who just lost a spouse, donating their gas money to a needy family halfway around the world that they'll never meet. They're there, living with the dignity and quiet grace that is the hallmark of the American people. And they are waiting to be summoned. I wonder if you remember the story of Horatius at the bridge. It happened in the early days of the Roman Republic, sometime around 500 BC. You heard the story? The Etruscan army, the story goes, marched on Rome to invade, and the Roman defenses were caught off guard. And eventually, the fighting coalesced around a bridge leading across the Tiber into the city. All was chaos. The Roman generals, surprised and unsure, were falling back. The city seemed in great peril. But a junior officer named Horatius thought otherwise. He saw that if the Roman army could simply hold the bridge long enough for the city to reset its defenses, the Republic could be saved. And so as the senior officers retreated, he advanced. And Macaulay tells us that as he charged to the front line, Horatius glanced over his shoulder to the Roman hills and caught a glimpse of his own home there and knew that it was worth defending. And so he took his stand. We know with the benefit of history, that the Roman Republic was still then quite young. Its most glorious days were still ahead. But Horatius didn't, couldn't know that as he took up his position. He only knew that to every man upon this earth, death cometh soon or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? Now we too need courage. We too need courage in our nation's moment of need. Now we too need bravery born of love for the place that we call home. For our republic is yet young and our greatest days are yet unwritten if we will stand. And so let us stand together. 
Let us stand for love of country and hearth and home. Let us stand with the conviction of Horatius. For in yon straight path, a thousand men may well be stopped by three. Now, who will stand on either hand and keep this bridge with me? God bless you. Good night. That was a proper speech from a proper leader who uh, really could kindle an awakening of the American spirit and the American tradition. And I just wonder whether or not we have fallen so far uh, that we could fail to respond to a call like Josh Hawley just issued. Um, I hope and I'm optimistic that we have it. I hope and I'm optimistic that one day I'll get an opportunity to vote for Josh Hawley or somebody else espousing those uh, those principles and those beliefs that this is a glorious republic and that we all have a shared interest in its survival, but that we can't become just a giant shopping mall for the global elite and the money changers on Wall Street. I'm optimistic that that, that spirit still lives in the heart of America. I'm also um, sad that I believe that uh, that spirit has been strangled in the corridors of power in this country, in Washington, D.C., and New York, and Los Angeles, and San Francisco, and that there are forces out there, powerful forces, that are going to have to be vanquished, that will stop at nothing to hold on to their privileged place that they've created in this cosmopolitan society that Josh Hawley just described to you there. But if we had a leader like Josh Hawley that could articulate this and we could get past our short attention spans that, uh, that Silicon Valley has cultivated in us, we truly could get back to a place where life would be much better than it is now, where you could raise a family on one income, where you could prioritize, um, you know, hearth and home and job and community above these um, these transient pleasures that the global economy have been feeding us of cheap goods and distractions. I would love the opportunity to vote for Josh Hawley. I've got to get a a brief commercial message in there if you'll stick with me. Well, it's summertime, and that makes it wild rice salad season. Wild rice is one of the healthiest foods, and there's nothing better than a cold wild rice salad waiting in the fridge when you get home after a hard day's work. Buy a five-pound bag of any wild rice product, and you'll get a free one-pound bag of wild rice and eight of our best wild rice salad recipes from menostalgia.com. When you use the promo code free rice, wild rice salads are great as a quick meal or as a tasty side dish when grilling outside. And we're sending enough recipes to have one in the fridge every day of the week. That promo code again is free rice and it's good online, in person, or over the phone. Log on today at mojowildrice.com. That's mojowildrice.com or call them directly at 800 328 6731. That's 800-328-6731. 
Well, you may recall back in the early days of the Trump administration when Jeff Sessions was still the embattled attorney general, uh, he instituted a program that would deny federal grant money from cities that refused to cooperate with the federal government uh, in deporting uh, illegal aliens who were getting out of uh, prison or or uh, county jails. And, of course, uh, the cities and counties that were affected by this, these so-called sanctuary cities, ran as fast as they could to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and found a, a leftist judge that uh, put a, uh, a, a hold on that a temporary restraining order. Well, now... There's been a ruling handed, by, handed down by a three-judge panel in the Ninth Circuit Court, which has become, um, which the administration, Trump, has appointed several judges to, to try to break up the, um, the bastion of left-wing social activism that they are. But this three-judge panel has, uh, has reversed the lower court and said that the federal government does indeed have the authority to determine what the criteria that uh, they're going to use to hand out these uh, grants. This is wholly unremarkable. It's obvious the federal government does it all the time. They attach strings to all sorts of grants. And in this one, saying you have to cooperate with federal law enforcement to remove criminal aliens was... um, was obviously in the, the national interests. There was no justification for the national injunction that was placed against it by the lower court to begin with. So on Friday, the Trump administration scored this huge win when uh, this Ninth Circuit Court overturned this. It was a two-to-one vote. And it was an absolute fabulous development. And it is on the heels of another uh, development that um, the Trump administration intends next year to zero out the number of refugee admissions that they propose to accept. Now, this will be characterized by the left as, you know, Nazi and and uh, xenophobic. The truth of the matter is this country has uh, imported so many millions of migrants for so long that we we need a moratorium very similar to what they had after the last huge wave of immigration that this this country had in the 20s to allow the melting pot to do its work, to allow people to assimilate, to allow the institutions as tattered as they are to try to bring us back together and and, uh, inculcate in the new arrivals this common culture and appreciation for liberty. Well, that's about it. I want to thank you for joining us this week, and I urge you to share that uh, that speech from Josh Hawley with your friends. And I hope you'll join us back here again tomorrow, or actually on Monday, for another edition of Right Now on Mojo Five O. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details.
Whether you're moving in together for the first time. This can be your closet. Or you're a new parent to a little fur baby. Viva Paper Towels can help you maintain a clean home. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. So they clean like cloth, helping you pick up after your new pet in your new home. For an exceptional cloth-like clean, use Viva Towels. Visit vivatowels.com to learn more and start fresh with a clean feeling of home.